Joining us today is the Honorable Dr. Nadia Shadlow. Nadia Shadlow, the smartest woman in the world. I've had the pleasure of working with Nadia on several projects. My name is Daniel Durlet, and I'm the president of the Global Young Entrepreneur Society. The Global Young Entrepreneur Society is an international organization supporting exceptional young people in accomplishing their entrepreneurial ambitions. Co-hosting the interview with me today is Louis Swire, the director of GS's UK operations and the editor-in-chief of The Curious Times. Dr. Shadlow began her career at the Pentagon as the country director for Ukraine, a role in which she established a U.S. relationship with the newly formed Ukrainian Ministry of Defense. Dr. Shadlow was the primary author of the 2017 U.S. National Security Strategy, achieving the full endorsement across all cabinet secretaries. Um, you're right, I did work on this, but you were, the, you were the primary author and you did an amazing job. I was incredibly proud of that product. Not only the substance of it, but it was really important. We got it out quickly. She delivered the national security strategy to Congress in the record-breaking time of just nine months. Dr. Shadlow is a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute and a visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. She's a frequent contributor to the Wall Street Journal and Foreign Policy magazine. She's also a full member of the Council on Foreign Relations. We are very pleased to welcome Dr. Nadia Shadlow. Thank, thank you so much, Daniel, for that lovely introduction, uh, because it's really entrepreneurs and, and young entrepreneurs who will drive um, the success of, of our free market democratic societies well into the future. So it, it's great to be here. It's great to have you on. Today, you are considered one of the foremost experts on geopolitics and defense policy. What is your story? Well, I, I think <laughs> I'm not sure that that premise is quite true, but only it's a topic that I have enjoyed and and for many years and had a privilege uh, to to work on, you know, sort of as a practitioner. So I've been very grateful for that and for learning from the many, many um, geopolitical and, and strategic experts out there. So my story, I think, is is a bit of of serendipity. <laughs> Um, I, I sort of entered this field through initially uh, studying Russian. Um, I always uh, thought the Russian language was quite beautiful and it would be interesting to study. I enjoyed Russian literature um, and through studying Russian, um, I sort of began to shift more toward U.S. foreign policy, understanding um you know, trying to understand the roots of the, the Cold War. Um, I was sort of in last stages of my education. The Soviet Union still existed. Um, so essentially, that basic foundation created opportunities for me to begin my career um, at the Defense Department. So again, a little bit of serendipity because you don't really go in or I didn't go in thinking about a set of uh, a career path um, necessarily but opportunities presented themselves. Um, and I found myself more and more interested in, in the topic of, of strategy. Um, I would like to say that, you know, sort of one point for, for this audience, uh, especially because you're in a business environment. And so what I learned early on, what I became intrigued by was the element of competition inherent in strategy. Um, and by working at the defense department, that gave me a particular outlook about competition. 
um, unlike many other agencies um, in the U of the U.S. government, whether it's the State Department or the Agency for International Development, um, those organizations don't really think competitively, right? That's not their process of thinking and formulating plans. Um, you know, maybe some would push back and say, I'm being unfair. But the Defense Department is inherently a competitive organization, right? It always is looking at what it has to do vis-a-vis uh, -vis adversaries, vis-a-vis -vis rivals, how to protect American interests, how to uh, how to ensure that that you're building the right capabilities. Um, so I learned from that experience that strategy is not static, that it's always changing. And so you have to be adaptable and always change too. And I think that that is quite, quite relevant to this audience and to your members. Um, essentially, um, the job I did really for most of my career involved supporting uh, individuals working um, on all of these issues of strategic importance in the United States. So I worked for a foundation for many years, which to use the a venture capitalist kind of frame, we, we provided seed funding <clears throat> to a whole range of individuals and institutions that were working on really important issues. So we were sort of venture capitalists in the world of ideas. Our returns, our investment were not financial. Our returns were a bit more subjective, uh, but it helped to grow um, grow the individuals who were looking at you know the nature of uh, China's political system, the nature of the Russian military, uh, what uh, what should the U.S. what should the U.S. Defense Department look like? What should the U.S. military look like? Um, what are some of the most effective ways to provide development assistance? Just to give you an example of the range of ideas. Uh, that that we supported the organization that I worked for, the Smith Richardson Foundation. Um, so that uh, was important because that helped to establish a broader kind of geopolitical picture of what was happening in the world, which then prepared me for the opportunity to work on the 2017 national security strategy. I do like to say that I think the important um, word to use is architect, right? There were many people that contributed to the 2017 strategy. So I was more of an architect that pulled it together, ensured that there was coherence and consistency in, in its arguments. What were the primary aspects of the 2017 U.S. national security strategy? Well, essentially, you know, it challenged four key assumptions that had been out there um, before 2017. I mean, these weren't Others had been talking about these assumptions, but the key part, the key aspect of the document was that it pulled it together, put it in one place and said, you know, here's kind of what, what we're thinking. The first was um, it challenged the idea that we were all, all nations were moving towards sort of democracy, that we were all on this path, uh, you know, an end of history sort of path toward political freedom, democracy, open economies. It challenged that and said that's not really the case, right? We have rivals who are thinking in different ways about the structure of the international order, and we needed to pay attention to that. It challenged uh, or put forth the idea that technology is, is actually not being used all for good, right? <laughs> that uh, while there was a lot of hope in the post-Cold War democracies favoring individuals, uh, people used terms like liberation technologies, that these were Good, good for humanity, that actually we were seeing different kinds of techno-authoritarian systems emerging, which challenged the role of the individual or, and, and challenged democracies. It challenged the idea that globalization was an unmitigated good, 
meaning it said, hey, maybe globalization had some downsides. Uh, maybe the United States was being taken advantage of in many ways. Our manufacturing had been hollowed out. Uh, it created vulnerabilities, which later became you know, quite apparent to, to everyone with COVID. But uh, there were many, many people arguing that for many years. So we said, hey, we need to relook and, and look at how globalization is impacting the interests of the United States and our allies and partners. And finally, it also made the point that um, United States military, you know, was contested. We were no longer the, the unipolar power in the international system um, that China had is undergoing, you know, one of the largest uh, military modernization efforts ever and um, is continuing to grow. And our power is, is contested militarily all around the world also by the proliferation of, of pretty potent technologies, right? Not just China, but we're seeing a system in which um, many countries uh, can use commercially available drones uh, and other technologies uh, for asymmetric effects. So it sort of captured those ideas and more and said, hey, given these trends, we need to relook at, at the international system. We need to understand that there's a lot of competition in the system and this, this geopolitical competition uh, was something we needed to pay more attention to. Now, I'm not sure it was necessarily new because I think many historians would say geopolitics really ne never left the international system, but politically we needed to shift and recognize that geopolitical competition was was front and center, you know, once again. What do you see as the greatest geopolitical risks and uncertainties today? We're seeing those risks today. It's not even a necessarily a future-oriented question. It, it's the evolution of, of the U.S.-China relationship. Um, it's the evolution of the war, the tragic war in Ukraine today, uh, and how that's upending. And, and you know, it's a, it's a humanitarian tragedy. Um, it's also uh, forcing countries to think about an order um, that really failed to prevent that, right? Deterrence didn't work in, in that case. Main transitions we're facing, whether it's an energy transition, whether it's a transition to a multipolar world of several nuclear powers, you know, as I alluded to, right? We were going from a world in which it was bipolar. We focused on deterrence and nuclear powers, U.S., uh, uh, Soviet Union, U.S., uh, Russia, and now uh, China is a big part of that equation as well, as well as, you know, lesser nuclear powers, too. Um, so we're seeing a, a whole range of uncertainties, uh, new technologies, um, AI, artificial intelligence are presenting us with challenges of, of speed, of the unknowns, and where there's speed, there's often instability, because there's always a disconnect between the pace at which government works and the pace at which technology works. So I think in thinking through the uncertainties, I like to think about the, the ones that are driven by technologies, uh, the ones that are driven by um, the aspirations of nation states um, and the ones perhaps driven by individuals. You can never discount the power of individual leaders too to change things for good or for bad. Um, there's an awful lot of talk about China. Where does the US see India and its allegiances? Because I feel as if that's possibly an, an overlooked power. It's very much an important question. I think partly it will be answered by uh, what India decides for itself, right? So India has probably sent some mixed signals. Um, it has clearly uh, reaffirmed, I would in some ways say it's sort of traditional non-aligned role in, in many ways, right? Because of its uh, sort of ambivalent stance vis-a-vis -vis, uh, vis -vis Russia. Um, 
But India is obviously, it's, it's a great entrepreneurial state. <laughs> it's, it's a country uh, filled with technologists um, and, and uh, you know, vibrancy. So it's, it's in terms of economically, it's a country uh, that the United States wants to continue to work with. But ultimately, I think that's a question that needs to be posed um, to uh, Indian leaders uh, to tell us what they're thinking. I mean, clearly, they they recognize the challenges posed by China, right? Um, uh, so, in in many ways, there there are some clear alignments there. Um, I think India has obviously been very important in the recalibration of the Indo-Pacific, this 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 concept of cooperation across um, the Indo-Pacific region, and India is a central feature of that and understands the sort of the challenges of the techno-authoritarian state that China is, um, but its actions, you know, its its position vis-a-vis -vis Russia has been has been more problematic. So that would be a great question uh, that we should talk about in a roundtable with with uh, some Indian foreign policy experts. <laughs> I mean, I think if I were a young entrepreneur today, I think it is important for you to have a thesis of how you think about that competition and how you think about um, into this blind. Um, I don't think it should be dictated to you, but I do think you should be uh, you know, fully aware of, of the range of, of positions on this. So um, you, know, you really need to have your assumptions about the direction of China and where it's going and how it's likely to impact long-term you know, free markets and, and democracies, right? So you emerged and Daniel and Lewis and others um, in, in this group most of you emerged from a sort of a, an infrastructure, a democratic uh, and free market entrepreneurial infrastructure. Um, is that infrastructure likely to prevail in a future in which China's approaches to technology and authoritarianism uh, prevails? So you have to think about that. <laughs> you have to think about the future courses of your business, right? Um, because that will impact a lot of your decisions. Um, that will impact decisions about taking foreign capital. That will impact your decisions about where to put supply chains so that you can ensure that um, you're controlling them and not too vulnerable uh, you know, it, it, to others. Um, that will impact your decision about you know, what sectors uh, to go into. I mean, do you want, for instance, to help in these contested areas, right? So uh, lots of reports today um, discuss these these contested areas, right? There's a great report. I mean, I'm I'm part of the advisory council, but um, so I'm biased. But the the um, the special competitive studies project, which is SESP, um, has done a really a couple of great studies. One is called platforms, and it focuses on these platforms of competition. So, do you want to work on areas related to AI, next generation networks, semiconductors, advanced manufacturing? Because these are areas where um, these are contested domains. Um, and and the report goes on to to argue that China actually leads in certain areas like advanced batteries and commercial drones, and the U.S. is is probably leading in others, including quantum technologies, for instance. So, I think this will help you make some decisions about. Um, the nature, the, the problems that you want your businesses to solve, right? And I think those problems and thinking about them will be linked to some of this geopolitical landscape that I've talked about. And you know, there are different people who have different views on this. So you should you should read read widely um, 
and and at least you know make sure you have your facts and figures and understand wh- why you hold your assumptions and what they mean not only for your business but as i said from the from the perspective of of the the political and economic infrastructure um, that grew you essentially what factors will determine whether china overtakes the us as the world's greatest superpower and what is the timeline for these developments do you agree with the Biden administration's national security strategy, which articulates the view that, you know, the window is closing, that that time matters here? So whether it's five years or 10 years that de- you want developments to be moving in a progression, which is good for U.S. interests. Um, so we're, you know, t- time is a, is a key element here. A lot of factors will determine that. I mean, domestic U.S. factors will determine that, right? military, economic, social, um, you know, will we be able to be disciplined about our spending in this country so that our future is not really just spent paying off our, our, our national debt, right? Things like that, which right now are very, very contentious in the United States. Um, uh, domestic considerations in China will matter too, right? Uh, they're, they're, China uh, has many weaknesses as well. Um, and thinking about the trajectory of those weaknesses of its economic growth or or slowed growth. Um, the alignments of the rest of the world will matter too, right? We're seeing different alignments. It's not a bipolar world anymore. We have countries kind of, you know, the, the phrase that's used, hedging their bets. <laughs> so um, will allies and partners and, and um, a whole range of other countries uh, think generally the way that we're thinking and want the same types of progression. Are they hedging their bets? Uh, so I think I think there are a lot of factors. There's not one overall. Sometimes in strategy, I think the weakness sometimes of, of strategists in my world is a constant emphasis on prioritization. I'll probably get in trouble for saying this and people will say, oh, that's ridiculous, Nadia. But We've come to a point where we have to do many things at once, (laughs) decently, (laughs) we're decently well, right? We have to do many things at once, at the same time, simultaneously to keep up. Um, Whether it's domestically, you know, we have to finally face the fact that America's public schools, for the most part, are failing so many, so many people out there. Uh, We have not, uh, we've not seen the progress that, that we need to see. We have to do that simultaneous to worrying about some of the the bigger problems of you know the future direction of our military and what it should be focused on, um, as well as what the underpinnings of economic growth are. All those things have to be done at the same time, probably by different people, but they have to be done at the same time. But I'm hopeful. I think it's important uh, to think about the positive alignments, to think about the the positive opportunities that are out there, and and the opportunities that all of you as young entrepreneurs um, can bring can bring to your countries. You have gotten to know famous leaders like Henry Kissinger and Mike Pompeo. And you, of course, have been a leader yourself. What makes a great leader? So I've been fortunate to work uh, with many great leaders and also to see some not great leaders in, in my, my career as well. Um, instead of you know naming specific leaders, I think what I'll do is, is think about what's what I think is important, what has think about what has made some of the most successful leaders. First and most important is a collaborative leadership style. Um, I think that's really important, and I think most successful leaders um, would would agree with me. Not all, 
Um, and what I mean by that, it's in contrast to a leadership style that is hiding information all the time and seeing uh, sort of almost um, playing power games with information, right? I think today, the way that you build a successful team is you build a successful team with collaborative leadership that makes it clear to the team what you're trying to achieve and that you're working as a team. And that's not always the case. It's definitely not always the case in business. So I recognize that, but I personally, um, my personal decision is to work with collaborative leaders because I think in the end, there's too much information out there to possibly sort through it. So the power of your team is going to help you sort through that information. Uh, second, you know, being clear in your objectives, clear in what you want to achieve, but also being open, not too stubborn to alternative views. So creating a process that really is a process to, to allow the injection of alternative bits of information. Um, and that means that probably, you know, you have to create an environment where people are, are willing and able to come to you with alternative sources of information, which is easier said than done. <laughs> because I've seen people react in certain ways to alternative views of information that do not foster sort of that environment uh, that allows that. Um, I think third, you need to recognize as a leader that there's a link between the operational and the strategic. And that's why information flow is important. There's a, there's a, a direct link uh, to how things are actually unfolding on the ground if you're manufacturing something or trying to create a supply chain for manufacturing and developing a strategic uh, goal for your for your company. Uh, just as in globalization, there's a link between the two, right? We saw how in globalization, the loss of manufacturing uh, led to a, a loss of innovation. So if you're producing, uh, obviously this is different for different sectors, but if you're producing things, um, letting your strategist sort of see what's happening on the ground. There's a link between strategy uh, and implementation that's often not appreciated as, as much as it should. Um, and finally, I think generally you wanna work for a secure leader, someone who's secure um, and in, in their knowledge, not threatened by new ideas, not threatened by people that are smarter than him or her uh, in certain areas, right? It's rare that a CEO of a company knows everything. And if they think they know everything, that's probably a problem. So you want to work ideally uh, for people that are secure in their knowledge and really do welcome um, uh, smart people working for them and with them side by side. So those are some of my, my lessons um, in leadership. And maybe I'd add a fifth that a leader that just appreciates your kind of uh, strategic and intellectual growth, right? So understands that you're probably, you may not be with her, in her, him or her forever, right? And that's good for you to go off to grad school and they should be supportive of that. Or it's good for you to go off if you wanna move in a direction to get your PhD in something. That doesn't mean the company necessarily has to support you, but the idea that you're fully supported in that mission um, and that your that leader is growing uh, his or her network in a way that you've, you've produced all these smart people now. <laughs> Um, that are working uh, perhaps in, in, in different sectors, but but had their start with you. And so recognizing that in a, in a boss, in a leader is important. You talk of collaborative, secure, and appreciative leaders. You worked underneath the, the Trump administration. Was Trump uh, one of these leaders? <laughs> Lewis is, 
in the job that I had to do working with um, General H.R. McMaster, uh, he was definitely one of those leaders. And most of the cabinet secretaries that I worked with, uh, you know, day to day were, you know, I didn't work, actually, I didn't work with them day to day, but in the interactions I had, we fostered that type of environment on the National Security Council and worked hard to do that. And I think that that's why we were successful um, in the uh, in getting the strategy done uh, within that first year of the administration. So. What impacts will rising energy costs have and what opportunities does this present for entrepreneurs? Biggest, the biggest game changer uh, will be fusion energy. There's There have been hugely important developments over the past few months on, on this. Um, timelines are are uncertain, but they are not as as long as most people have come to think. Um, so there is a, a huge amount of, of scientific um, uh, progress in that area. And that could be a huge game changer. That's but great. also it depends what kind of company you're in, right? So it depends. Energy costs are going to depend, are going to affect companies in all different ways. I mean, yes, the rise is inflationary for everyone. Um, but the Curious Times, Lewis's publication, is going to be impacted in a different way uh, than those manufacturing, you know, uh, microchips. So it depends your industry. But, um, you, you talked about allocation of U.S. troops around the world to ensure geopolitical security. Um, following Biden's withdrawal from U, uh, from Afghanistan with U.S. troops, what do you think of that? I think overall uh, the way... Um, the way that we conducted the withdrawal was a was a disaster for U.S. prestige, and what has happened in Afghanistan is an unmitigated humanitarian catastrophe. So um, it's really hard to talk about um, human rights and the rights of women around the world, which are key themes of the Biden administration, and and look at what's happened in Afghanistan. There's too great of an inconsistency there. Um, you know, we could have taken a decision which would have preserved um, around 5,000 troops there, five to 7,000, um, to have just essentially kept a status quo. Uh, instead, now we're looking, uh, we're now looking for new places to operate um, in, in in that region, right? To sort of in in the in the ongoing in the ongoing fight against um, ISIS. Um, so it's there are some inconsistencies there. Where do you think the Center for Innovation will be in the coming years? I'll, I'll talk about two things. So I think we need to be careful as Americans and, and um, you know, the tech community from patting ourselves on the back all the time about, you know, being the most innovative uh, country today and sort of having the foundations of innovation as our strength. Now, that has been true, but we really need to recognize what has changed in that innovation ecosystem. Right. Um, in the past, we often point to moonshots and, and the past uh, successes we've we've had um, in developing everything. You know, from microchips um, to to the early moonshots to the moon. I personally think a lot of the foundations of that innovative infrastructure have shifted. Right. Um, we can't replicate the moonshots of the past because too many of the the foundational elements have shifted. The report that I mentioned, the SCSP uh, report that I mentioned, the platforms panel talks about, uh, they, they use this term, the geometry of innovation, the new geometry of innovation. And I like that very much. Um, 
it argues that in the past, there were sort of three elements to, to that innovative ecosystem that America had, industry, academia, and government. Today, there are two more elements making it five, private capital, so you all are very important, as well as what they call the crowd, meaning kind of the, the broader community out there that are all important components to innovation. Um, so I think there's still sort of a, a contest out there in the innovation domain. Um, partly it will depend in some ways on, on um, you know, can, I, I guess, you know, there's a book out there, I'll mention this at the end, uh, Time and Chung has written a book called Innovate to Dominate. <laughs> so will China be able to innovate well enough to, to dominate, right? To change the infrastructure of innovation for us and for others down the line. I think those are open questions, but at the same time, precisely because they're open, that provides us and you all with an opportunity to participate in a way that's positive for US um, and allied and partner interests. That's a perfect segue to our final question. What books, media sources, or publications would you recommend for young entrepreneurs to better understand geopolitics? I think, again, it's hard. There's a universe of wonderful books out there. So I like to divide um, my reading um, you know, into categories. So to my point earlier about thinking about where you are on this broader, broader competition, whether it's US-China or whether it's techno-authoritarianism and uh, you know, free and open markets and democracies, what are your assumptions? What are you thinking about in that domain? So some of the, the books that I think are good on this, but again, there are many. I mentioned Timing Chung's Innovate to Dominate. Um, uh, that's a, it's a, it talks about, the subtitle is The Rise uh, of the Chinese Techno-Security State. That's an important book. Um, Rush Dashi, who now serves um, in, the, in, the, in the Biden administration, wrote a book called The Long Game, which is an important one. Uh, Michael Oslin uh, wrote a couple years ago a nice volume called Asia's New Geopolitics. And you, Graham Allison's book, uh, Destined for War, because his thesis is that in, in challenging a rising China, we could end up um, um, with a war. And so understanding that is important and thinking through that is important. Uh, those are you know specifically on China. Um, on innovation, I've been reading. I just, I just, um, I'm reading now a book that is about ten years old, but I should have, I hadn't read it before. It's called Walter Isaacson, The Innovators, and it's actually kind of interesting because it, you, you get a sense of the indiv individuals behind innovation in the United States, um, and I think it's a nice, it's a, it's a contrast a little bit to, um, to some of the way China thinks about innovation and drives it. Um, this the well-known book, Chris Miller's book, Chip Wars, but it's a great book. Uh, there's a lesser known book called America Inc., um, which is about sort of the rise of America's um, kind of industrial policy and how we've grappled with that um, in, the, in the United States. On strategy, um, the books I'll mention now are books that are more in the realm of geopolitics. There's a whole business literature, but I'll leave that to you all to, to work on for your for your listeners. Um, Colin Gray, uh, G-R-A-Y, I think he was at, I should know, I think he was at in, in the UK for a long time, King's College maybe, um, wrote a book called Modern Strategy. I mean, he's a wonderful strategist and anyone uh, in, that, in, in that world um, will know him. He's written many, many books. I also like a book um, by a friend and old colleague, Thomas Mencken called Net Assessment and Military Strategy because the concept of net assessment is a really important one. 
it sort of is it's essentially the idea that strategy is always always changing you often need to look at a wide range of inputs into strategy and develop your counter strategies so strategy is rarely about knowing just one thing you need to understand the wide range of inputs so in your world in the business world it would be understanding your competitors but also understanding what inputs your competitors are likely to have over the next few years you know going forward so there's always a dynamic quality to it um, Wes Mitchell and Jakob Briegel, uh, two good friends, wrote a great book called The Unquiet Frontier, which is explaining foreign influence in key regions of the world. So that's important, too. Uh, you know, there are <laughs> so many books out there. My recommendation ultimately is to read, you know, try to read three to five books on a topic um, of your choosing, the same topic. And that will provide you with a foundation of knowledge uh, to think more sharply, to ask the next set of questions. And to read out of your literature, just as I now am reading more in the, in the business literature domain, uh, to understand that world more and thinking through concepts of strategic competition, uh, thinking through classical concepts like the innovator's dilemma, all of these things that are in the kind of business community and, and thinking about the strategy writing in, in uh, the geopolitical world, right? That's the that's the beauty of interdisciplinary, which is something that I that I love uh, to try to challenge myself with. We have come to the end of today's discussion, which I found incredibly insightful into the world of geopolitics. On behalf of the Global Young Entrepreneur Society, Dr. Nadia Shadlow, thank you very much for speaking with us today. Thank you so much. It has been a pleasure speaking with both of you. And again, I, I, um, I think the organization uh, is great and uh, will provide us all hope well into the future. So thank you so much.